You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And Yahweh your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of Yahweh and keep all his commandments that I command you today. Yahweh your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For Yahweh will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of Yahweh, your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today, by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death blessing, and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live, 
loving Yahweh your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 676 of this podcast. That was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 30 to do with repentance and forgiveness and the choice between life and death. Today is Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. And oh, by the way, by the way, that means all of the podcast episodes that were subscriber only in the month of July are available for you to listen to. Even if you can't afford 99 cents a month, 99 cents a month is too much for you. You can still listen to the podcast episodes, eight of them that were subscriber only last month. But that is to say too, if you have an interest in supporting this podcast, I would encourage you not just to hit subscribe like you're following the podcast. There's a difference. There is a way for you to subscribe where I get money. And that's what I want you to do is to subscribe in that way. Subscribe in that way where I get money. That would be cool, but you don't have to. I'm still going to do this even if you don't. And hopefully you derive a benefit. I derive a benefit from podcasting. I very much do. And Why do I say that? I say that because we need to learn how to talk about everything. We need to learn how to take every thought captive. If we are Christians, it is our fruitfulness. It is how we make our joy complete. It is how we please the Lord, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. How much of loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind has to do with talking through things and being able to communicate and confess what is good, but then also needing to determine whether what is in our hearts and minds is good. Is it true what we believe? And if so, how is it true? How do these things go together? It's good for me to grapple with that. It's good for you to grapple with that. It's good if we work through it together. And so I'm going to continue on podcasting because I believe that this loves the Lord, my God, And I believe it shows love, it demonstrates love towards you that I would talk about these things where you can hear what I have to say. But enough about that, enough about the sales pitch on subscribing. I'm glad you're listening right now. And this passage, Deuteronomy 30, is poignant. And just recognize if you can think in terms of not everything being about the present because there is something tyrannical about always living in the present, but not having any connection, having any context, right? When you only live in the present, but there's no context into which you put present events, current events, there's something oppressive about that. There's something smothering about that even because there are so many things going on. How do you know which things to draw on or pay attention to or deal with or which opportunities to take advantage of, which opportunities are really opportunities and they're not traps or mirages. If you have a sense of context, 
for the present, it really does simplify how you deal with what comes up or what you pursue or who you partner with or who you avoid or who you confront for that matter. If you have a sense of context, it makes a great deal of difference as to how you relate. But then some of this needs to be separated out. What our context really is versus what we have in our minds as a context. And so if we believe a lie about where we come from, why are we here, where are we going, then that's going to skew what we are about right now. If we don't know the truth about where we come from, why are we here, where are we going, what should we be about, then that limits us significantly. There's a kind of blindness. There's a kind of ignorance when we don't have the context of our place in history, our place in the grander scheme of things, how we got to now is very important. And there's some of that in Deuteronomy 30, but then it's more for us that they are being told, these Israelites are being told, here's what to expect. In the previous chapter, there was a lot about blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. But then here we have some of that and we also have an expectation that is set on them when all these things come upon you, which is to say, all of these things will come upon you, which is to say, there will be periods in the future where you will be blessed, you will be obedient, you will be faithful. And here we should understand who is being addressed is not just that present generation, those who are hearing right then and there. Those who are being addressed are those who have not been born yet, but are present actually, after a fashion. And there's a sense in which people are kind of like Russian nesting dolls, so to speak. I know Russia is not exactly the most popular country to attach to any analogy right now in a positive sense, but bear with me, Russian nesting dolls, you get these beautiful painted eggs, as it were, bigger ones that contain smaller ones. And the more you open the larger Russian nesting dolls, the more you find there are additional layers and it just goes down and down and down and down into smaller and smaller dolls. And that's kind of like what's happening here. You have generations contained within those who are present to hear this promise, this expectation. When all these things come upon you is not just those who are alive right then and there in the sense that you and I are up and about, active, doing things. Those who are there are also those who are yet to be born, future generations. And you could mean when you say that or when you realize that or when you think about that, you could mean literally a mother and a child she's pregnant with. My wife is pregnant right now. And so there's something of what I mean by this whole Russian nesting dolls analogy, but there's more to it than that. If in the case of a pregnant woman who maybe listens to what is being said in Deuteronomy 30 in real time, thousands of years ago, if a pregnant woman is carrying a son, like my wife is carrying another son for me, that son already has his genetic material from his mother and from his father. He gets the Y chromosome from his father. 
and his father's father before him and his father's father's father before that. That's the only way it gets passed on down. And so that unborn son has the Y chromosome, and this is for him as well. This promise is for him as well, not just for the father who is a full-grown man. No, no, that unborn child is an inheritor of this promise, just like this whole nation that is being addressed was an inheritor. They were made a promise to in Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob. The promise was made to Isaac in some sense when the promise was made to Abraham, even though Abraham had not gotten his wife pregnant with Isaac at the time that God made the promise. If you you want to get even weirder about it, even more bizarre, even more obscure, even more abstract, how much less so had Jacob been born to Isaac if Isaac had not been born to Abraham yet? And yet there's something of a timelessness a distortion of the whole relationship of space and time in the mind of God because he is not subject to space and time before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says in the New Testament. I am is a riddle, so to speak, but it's not an impossible to solve riddle. Interestingly too, verse 11 in Deuteronomy 30 here, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Think about this passage in relation to your attitude towards the Old Testament generally. And think about perhaps far too many hastily delivered summaries of the Old Testament and God's relationship with Israel and the giving of the law to Israel. Think about all the times you've had this characterized, or maybe you yourself have characterized the giving of the law to Israel as being God giving an impossible task, which he knew Israel was incapable of fulfilling. And all of that was over the span of centuries with a whole nation's worth of people. All of that was just to help us to see that we need the Messiah. We need Jesus. After a fashion, that's not far from the truth, but then that can't be quite all we say about it because we're in too much of a hurry, we're impatient, or that's what we want to believe because it makes it easier to just say, ah, we'll skip the whole thing, right? We'll skip the whole Old Testament as context for the New Testament or the Old Testament as context for our Christian lives today. What do we do with verse 11? This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. There's a procrastinator being addressed here. And also, oh, by the way, Christians can be this way. We can procrastinate when it comes to obeying God and we can fall back too quickly, too often too easily, too comfortably, and think that we're encouraging one another when we affirm this in saying, ah, someday, right? Someday when Christ returns or calls me home, then I'll be obedient. No, no, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. 
Now we've transitioned, right? Now we've come full circle from the attitude that Israel was not capable of obeying, essentially is what we're saying. They weren't capable of obeying. It was too hard for them. So we would disagree with verse 11, apparently. We've come full circle. And now we're even saying that it's too hard for us to obey, even with the Holy Spirit, which begs the question, are we actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Are we actually in Christ, if that's our attitude? James would have quite a lot to say about that in his New Testament epistle. John, for instance, also would all but call us a liar if we talked like that, thought like that, and maybe many of us are liars. It should very much occupy our attention if we're not clear on that. It's possible that we are, some of us, saying peace, peace when there is no peace between us and God. And it's possible that many that we know are going to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, on the last day, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You worker of lawlessness is how he's going to describe them. Why? Because they say the opposite. They are actually the person who is being addressed. In verse 11 through 14 in Deuteronomy 30, they would say, it is too hard for me. This commandment that you command me today is too hard for me. It's too far off. It is in heaven. And Jesus will have to return again to bring it to me, that I can hear it and do it. I won't believe. I won't obey. I won't follow. I won't submit. I won't trust until the second coming. And that's dangerous. That's a dangerous way to relate. And yet that's all too common in our churches because there's no fear of God before our eyes. And also I think at the same time, this leads to there being no fear of God before our eyes. It's a cause and an effect. And there's a relationship in both directions with our fear of the Lord that we say it is too hard for us. And we also say we don't think God actually expects us to obey, which is folly. You have not read what he gave us in his word. You haven't read what he has said. You haven't read what he's done. If that's your conclusion, that God is indifferent or that he's going to say, I was joking, just kidding, just jokers. No, 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 no. Note here, What's at stake is nothing less than life or death. This is a life or death situation. This is a life or death decision. Choose life. Or if you would choose evil, if you would choose disobedience, faithlessness, choose death. But choose life. If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, you shall surely perish. I promise you, You're going to die. You're going to be destroyed by your faithlessness, your profligacy, your idolatry, your disobedience. You're making war against God. You won't win. Choose life. Let's talk about something by contrast, though. Something that 
many of us for most of our lives thought was a very innocent influence on childhood and families in America and around the world for that matter. We grew up with their movies and their TV shows and all kinds of merchandise and their theme parks. We grew up, many of us, not all, but many of us, believing that they were as pure as the driven snow over there and that all of their intentions were very innocent and that we could trust them. And by contrast, it's interesting to think about how little we trust our Bibles in many cases, and we hide the Word of God from our children in too many cases. We sanitize it, we clean it up, we present them with the boiled down, perhaps misconception all too often that we think they can handle, but really we're cleaning it up and being holier than God after a fashion. We think by contrast that, say for instance, Walt Disney material prior to the last few years was clean, wholesome, innocent, a good influence. But I'm going to play for you a bit of audio that my wife sent me on Instagram. She sent me the video. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go and watch it for yourself. Go check it out for yourself. But this is a short film that Walt Disney's company put together for the Population Council back in 1968, informing the audience about the dangers of overpopulation and having too many children. I'll play the audio for you. Do watch the visual part of it as well when you get a chance, if you would. Send it to somebody you know who is maybe not convinced. It might help you to retool your thinking. It might help them to retool their thinking about what they have their children to watch. But without further ado, here is cut one. Take a listen. For at his side, of course, is woman. The family of man is increasing at an astonishing rate. There was great progress in medical science. There was more food and better distribution. There were vastly improved methods of health and sanitation. The old balance is upset. Those who live now, instead of dying, are added each year to the number of people in the community. Of course, as more and more people are added, their needs increase. But now let's paint another picture of this family. More and more children are born. With this many mouths to feed, there won't be enough to go around. There will be no money for modern conveniences. The ox can no longer be fed. And the work must be done by human effort. The mother will have too much to do. She'll be tired and cross, and her health will suffer. The children will be sickly and unhappy, with little hope for the future. Modern science has given us a key, new kind of personal freedom, family planning. The balance will be restored. All of us have a responsibility toward the family of man, including you. Okay, and obviously that's sped up, but there you have it. There is a Walt Disney short film about family planning. And tell me where 
that differs at all from the philosophy of Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and the eugenicists. Tell me if you can spot a distinction between that short film and the campaigns of William Vogt going around the world to third world countries, encouraging governments in poorer developing countries decades ago to limit population growth, sometimes through compulsory sterilization, sometimes, as in the case of China, through a one-child policy that commanded parents to have only one child, and if they would have more than one child, to choose. To choose which child they would keep. Tell me if you can spot a difference between the philosophy that Walt Disney's company was propagating back in 1968 and the darkest, most sinister, most inhumane, ugliest policies of the global progressives. I can't. I I can't find a difference. Maybe you'll find a difference. Maybe you can point it out to me. But I don't think there is a difference. There is no difference. Check out The Wizard and the Prophet if you're looking for a good book on the topic. Contrasting and comparing Norman Borlaug and William Vogt, two scientists who left very different legacies. Choose life or choose death, Deuteronomy 30 says. Also, too, some people, whether or not they are preaching the gospel, so to speak, choose to encourage life and the fulfillment of the dominion mandate and others in a tizzy, very deeply troubled and unhappy, choose death. Not for themselves, usually. No, no, no. It's never themselves that they go around telling everybody they're going to remove from the so-called surplus population. It's always the most innocent, oddly enough. It's always the most vulnerable, oddly enough. The children, the unborn children who should not be conceived or if conceived, if carried for a time, who should not be allowed to be born alive. It's always the most vulnerable. It's always the most innocent. And then they couch their campaign to convince parents to not have children or to abort their children. They couch all of the above as if it's the most compassionate, reasonable, sensible, scientific thing. And it's not. A better science, which is to say a better knowledge, would have us remembering that it's God who commanded be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It's also God who blesses with provision. He sends his rains on the just and the unjust. It's God who gives the increase. And the men like Norman Borlaug, who went around the world, increasing the carrying capacity of the land in developing countries, in poorer countries, helping them to modernize their agricultural techniques to be more successful, more efficient in their use of the land. It's men like those men. It's men like Norman Borlaug who have proven the Malthusians wrong again and again. They forecast doom and gloom, and they were doing it before the climate change, global warming, now global boiling crowd was doing it. And in fact, you might say that global warming was just a rebranding, just like global boiling is a rebranding of climate change, and climate change was a rebranding of global warming. 
global warming was a rebranding of the push for global communism and the push for eugenics. But it's even more sinister than the earlier variant because it enlists parents to terminate their own children, to offer up their own children as sacrifices to demonic philosophy, if not out-and-out worship of pagan gods like those who offered their children on the fire to Moloch in the Old Testament, those nations God drove out of Canaan and dispossessed and destroyed and ordered destroyed, if not literally in that way when the rubber meets the road for most people, functionally the equivalent of that. And yet, I'll read for you just a comment or two on this video, one from Ray Reeves Sofaz, and I quote, well, I'm from a family of seven, and while I love all my siblings, <laughs> wait, there's going to be a but, right? There's going to be a but. My parents didn't think this through. Boomers inherited the best economy the world had ever seen post-World War II. They thought it would last, not past trickle-down economics, NAFTA trade deals, and the 1% hoarding wealth. People in general should not have too many kids, though. I don't think it's conspiratorial to suggest that the more mouths you feed, the more likely you're going to be growing up in poverty, not enough to go around. Now let's just stop for a moment and ask whether this isn't circular reasoning and how much this kind of thinking has been informed, not just by propaganda like the 1968 video from Walt Disney Company, but how much of that kind of thinking has been informed by the policies which were designed to nudge people in the direction of having fewer children, having no children if they were deemed unsuitable along the old school eugenics, good genes line of thought, the Malthusian line of thought, the one-child policy line of thought. No, no. I mean, how much of this kind of thinking about one's own experience, interpreting one's own experience of growing up in a large family, and there not being quite as much to go around as would be ideal, how much of that is informed by policies with regards to regulations on industry and commerce, as well as tax rates for those who get after it, who go out there, they work hard, and they would be living off of the surplus. They would be building up a savings. They would be building their homes and houses bigger and better but they're taxed at, say, for instance, in my case, 26%. The first 26% of my check, the first quarter plus 1% of my income right now, as of January 1st to the present, goes to taxes. Do you mean to tell me that how my children are fed, clothed, housed, my oldest son having turned 16 years old yesterday, do you mean to tell me how my children have been fed, clothed, housed for 16 years and counting is because my wife and I chose to have a lot of children and it has nothing to do with how highly I'm taxed, how much of my own earnings, the fruit of my own labors I'm allowed to keep and invest as I see fit in providing for my family. No, 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 no. Go check out some Thomas Sowell. Learn about basic economics. Read a little bit of Milton Friedman while you're at it. 
read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Read The Wizard and the Prophet. We need to understand that in many cases, the provisional capacity of fathers in particular has been pinched by people who want the pretext for creating dependency. In Genesis, we have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. What does Pharaoh order Joseph to do? Oversee the accumulation of food supplies to get through the seven years of famine. And then what? Seven years of famine come, the food runs out in the surrounding nations and in Egypt. Everyone except for the priesthood in Egypt sells all they have to get food, becoming entirely dependent on and even slaves to Pharaoh. They sell their land, they sell their livestock, they sell themselves and their wives and their children until the whole of the people, the whole of the nation belongs to the original OG 1%, Pharaoh. Curiously, whose food was it? Who produced all that food that was being stored away in silos and granaries? Who produced all that food to begin with? Whose food was it? Who should have been able to store that food, build up a rainy day fund, so to speak? Who did it ultimately belong to? At the outset, it belonged to the people who produced it. And if in due time, Pharaoh drunk on the power that he was able to wield over the whole of the nation of Egypt, started to deal with problems as he saw them by ordering the death of newborn sons in particular. Every Hebrew baby boy born alive was to be killed. And when the midwives wouldn't do it, he gave a general order to all Egyptians. If you find a baby Hebrew boy born alive, Throw that baby in the Nile. Kill it. Kill that boy. Kill him, I should say. And history doesn't always repeat in an identical way, of course, but it certainly does rhyme. It certainly does rhyme. What is going on in our day with these ridiculously wealthy industrialists, captains of industry from a century ago, plus also those they entrusted with their vast wealth, those they passed their resources down to, what we find is that that class of people relates to those who are more likely to be employees than stockholders, those who are more likely to be wage slaves than citizens fully engaged with their civic duty. They relate much the way Pharaoh related to the Hebrews in Egypt. And I'm sure there was far more to what Pharaoh was willing to do, what he did do, than just that. But I bring this to your attention because this is one of the consequences of not reading the Old Testament. When we sum up the whole business as it was too hard for Israel to do what they were commanded to do here, it was far off and it still is. And so we don't even need to read the Old Testament. And pretty soon you say, I don't even need to read the New Testament either, but I don't want to, which is more concerning than whether I need to per se, strictly speaking. It's concerning that I don't want to and that I'm looking for ways to flip the script and actually 
condemn people who would encourage me to read God's word. Because you know what is contained in the narrative? Wisdom, understanding, discernment. If you would read and if you would understand and if you would know that this is what has happened before, and if you would know how God has protected, provided for his people in the midst of Egypt, for instance, bringing them out in due time, bringing them into Canaan. If you would know that, it might change quite a lot of how you relate to the wealthiest, most powerful, most manipulative, most oppressive people in our day, and whether you go along with them when they say, here's what I want you to do. Don't have children. Here's what I want you to do. Mortgage all of your liberties, all of your rights, all of your material wealth, all of your opportunities, all of your freedoms, mortgage all of the above to me and become a slave to me and own nothing and be happy. We would know better what to do about that and how to relate to it, not just for our own sake, but also for the sake of our descendants after us. We would know what to respond to that with for the sake of our neighbors, our family, our friends, our countrymen. And yet we too have life and death set before us as choices. What do we choose? In too many cases, we choose to serve our God as our belly, or I should say we serve our belly as if it were our God. And we shrug at lies, at all manner of false accusations. We shrug at corruption. We are not a people who hate bribes. We are a people who say, yeah, what do you expect? That's what it is. That's what happens. It's folly. It's a blindness. It's the path to death and destruction. Consider with me, if you will, a piece by Harris Rigby over at Not To Be, published just last week, July 27th, highlighting how Jim Jordan has released the Facebook files showing the Biden White House pressured Meta to censor protected speech, including memes. And if you haven't heard about that, part of the reason why is probably, quite probably, that they already are censoring this revelation of censorship, just like they would censor you for criticizing, disagreeing with, making fun of, or dissenting from these consensus messages and positions, they also are going to say, if you are criticizing the censorship itself, ah, well, we can't have that. And so where does it end, right? Where does it end? Ultimately, it's a very dark place that we go to if the powers that be decide that they have to silence those who would criticize them, those who would challenge them at the ballot box. It's a very dark place that we go to particularly if the things that they have been doing, are doing, intend to do, are corrupt, dishonest, evil, wicked. If they are already trying to cover their tracks, and then it comes out that, hey, listen, one of the ways they've been trying to cover their tracks is by silencing people who draw attention to the fact that their tracks were not totally covered, then watch out, right? Watch out. But Jim Jordan is, I think, I could be wrong, but it seems to me he is one of the decent people 
who are in Congress. He is one of the good guys. And I know there were a whole lot of Republicans in the House Freedom Caucus who wanted him to be the Speaker of the House. And he very clearly got up and spoke against that and said, I do not want to be Speaker of the House. I think that the Speaker of the House should be, in fact, McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy is the one we should be supporting. He needs to do his thing. And I have other things that I am supposed to be about. Representative Jim Jordan from Ohio tweeted out July 27th, the Facebook files part one smoking gun docs prove Facebook censored Americans because of Biden White House pressure. Thread. The next in the series stated, and I quote, never before released internal documents subpoenaed by the Judiciary Committee prove that Facebook and Instagram censored posts and changed their content moderation policies because of unconstitutional pressure from the Biden White House. He follows up in the next tweet. What did the Biden White House want removed? A meme. That's right. Even memes weren't spared from the Biden White House's censorship efforts. Here we have screenshotted a share from a certain Timothy McComas. And the meme is, 10 years from now, you will be watching TV and here. And here we have Leonardo DiCaprio from a film that he starred in. I believe The Wolf of Wall Street. Sitting up in his leatherback chair, holding a beer and a cigarette, pointing at the TV. And the caption reads, and I quote, did you or a loved one take the COVID vaccine? You may be entitled, dot, 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 end quote. So that is to say that the Biden administration, Joe Biden and his team in the White House contacted Facebook and said, we want you to change your policies so as to root out and remove content like this, content like this meme because this meme is now fake news. You know what this meme actually is? Is it's criticism of and an attempt to be humorous about the way in which the COVID vaccine was mandated and people's very lives were threatened to be destroyed. Everything short of just taking them out into the middle of the street and shooting them, their lives were threatened with everything that goes into sustaining life, their social standing, their reputation, their freedom of movement, their ability to go and get access to needed healthcare procedures, their ability to work and earn a living, their ability to function in public, in society. All of that was threatened if they would not get the COVID vaccine. And so for someone to even just jokingly say, you know what, this could be like mesothelioma, does not get a chuckle, does not get a rational response from the Biden White House and from the Democrats, from the leftists. It gets censorship, which is not exactly the best way to sell that this was fake news. When you just silence it instead of arguing your case in the public and then trying to persuade people and trying to win them over by the force of your arguments, by the content of your character as demonstrated down through the years, down through the decades, it really does strongly imply that you don't have a good argument and that you don't have good character and 
that you are not interested in persuasion so much as manipulation and coercion. And, oh, by the way, if you don't have good character, but you're all about manipulation and coercion, by turn, whichever will get people to do what you want them to do, keep them from doing what you don't want them to do, well then, you have all the necessary ingredients if we are going to have totalitarianism. And so this can't stand. Representative Jim Jordan, drawing this out into the open, I challenge any of the moderate folks who say, oh, it's all the same, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't really matter. I challenge you, find examples of exactly this kind of a thing being censored when it's Democrats mocking Republicans or criticizing Republicans. I challenge you to find some examples and bring them to my attention. You can write to me at Mullet at ProtonMail.com, G-A-R-R-E-T-T-A-S-H-L-E-Y-M-U-L-L-E-T at ProtonMail.com. And if you can't spell ProtonMail.com, it's probably best that you don't email me anyways. But Republicans don't do this. Democrats do this. And this is not a new thing. This is not a recent development. This is a longstanding characteristic of the Democrats. There is a despotic quality to pure democracy. And what the radical left has been arguing for is pure democracy right up until they have a slim majority. Any majority will do. It could be 51%. And then their idea of what democracy means and what it constitutes and what it looks like and what it should produce will radically change to you do whatever they say. And it doesn't matter if you have 49% who say this is absolutely destructive and unethical and wrong and evil, you can silence those 49% like that. But interestingly, if the 49% happen to be the Democrats, any avoidance of moderating to give them what they want, what they demand, that's undemocratic. That's a threat to our democracy. It's a farce. It's a farce. And if you're just tuning in, Facebook has been doing this for years. They've been doing this for quite some time. And they have done real damage to the brands and reputations of individuals, organizations, corporations, by their shadow banning, all the while fraudulently pretending that this is a free and open public discourse. And the community standards are a joke. If they can just say that whatever you said was hate speech because they hate the speech that you were participating in or that you were communicating and sharing, if they can call it hate speech and then delete it, as has happened to my content, or make it impossible for anyone to see it, as has happened with my content, if they can just call it hate speech and then abracadabra, it does not get distributed. Nobody can see it. And then vice versa, they can give a perfect score to the people who are absolutely full of loathing and contempt and only loathing and contempt for conservatives. Then I say that this is one big bad joke, but it's not just that. It's tyrannical. It's totalitarian. It's corrupt. This is having partiality, showing partiality. This is having two sets of weights and measures, which God says is an abomination to him. If we care 
then this will change. It will have to change, even if just by the force of our own influence, our own example, the way that we relate to people, it will change. And that will ripple out if we don't care, if we shrug, if we minimize it, if we make excuses for it because it's upsetting and we care nothing so much about anything as we do about how we feel. And so we tell ourselves whatever story we have to to feel the way we want to feel. Then this will get worse and worse and worse. And there is hardly a limit you can imagine to how bad the results will be, how toxic and poisonous and bitter the fruit will be. Continuing on with Jim Jordan's tweets, and I quote, what happened next? Facebook panicked. In another April 2021 email, Brian Rice, Facebook's VP of Public Policy, raised the concern that Slavitt's challenge felt, quote, very much like a crossroads for us with the Biden White House in these early days, end quote. But Facebook wanted to repair its relationship with the White House to avoid adverse action. Quote, given what is at stake here, it would also be a good idea if we could regroup and take stock of where we are in our relations with the White House and our internal methods too, end quote. Here are some documents down below. If you scroll down through the Not the Bee post, some screenshots. Documentation showing that Biden's White House demanded Facebook take down a Tucker Carlson video, for instance, to quote the share from Harris Rigby, Facebook killed the traffic on the story, cutting its potential reach in half, but that wasn't enough for the White House. Quote, thanks, Nick. Here are some talking points that you can use if Andy raises Rob's questions. How was this post not violative? While we remove content that explicitly directs people not to get the vaccine, as well as content that contains explicit misrepresentation about vaccines, we review this content in detail, and it does not violate those policies. Moreover, you say reduced and demoted. What does that mean? There's 40,000 shares on the video. Who is seeing it now? How many? How effective is that? The video is receiving 50% demotion for seven days, as it is in the queue to be fact-checked. Harris Rigby continues, even though the video broke no Facebook rules and included no misinformation, Tucker Carlson's free speech was stymied by the government big tech connection. Even after this, the Biden White House applied public pressure saying Facebook was killing people and these memes and misinformation resulting in Facebook caving again and adjusting its policy to appease the White House as well as demands from the Surgeon General. So that is to say, these rules are a blank check. They're a blank check for the Democrats and that's not how it is supposed to be. If that doesn't violate, it certainly does violate the laws of God. Why do I say that? Because what this boils down to at the end of the day is bearing false witness against your neighbor. How serious of a charge is it if you slander your neighbor and you say, you are killing people? Oh, really? Innocent people? Yes, innocent people. Oh, really? I'm murdering them? Yes. Effectively, you're murdering them. So I'm a murderer. Yes, you're a murderer. What's the consequence for murderers? Ultimately, imprisonment. The death penalty. Do you see how quickly that spools up? Do you see how quickly that escalates? Claiming that somebody is murdering other people because they're disagreeing with you about your messaging on the vaccines, which actually there's a a great deal of evidence 
to question the safety of, the efficacy of, and there has been for years, if it's actually the vaccines that are at least correlated with myocarditis, blood clots of a fantastic size and length and breadth forming in people's legs, strokes, if the vaccines are correlated at least with those things. And at the same time, you have the messaging of mandates. You won't be able to work, travel, hold a job, get medical care in some places. If you don't get the vaccine, you add all that up and then you claim that anybody who criticizes your prescription, your demands, your mandates is a murderer, a mass murderer even potentially, and thereby you silence them. Well, you shouldn't stop there. You can't stop there. Why stop at silencing them? Why not just send the police in to shoot them? Why not haul them off to prison? If they're a mass murderer, haul them off to prison. This is attempted murder. Where are the charges? Oh, but wait, therein lies your dishonesty because you're saying what you think you have to say in order to get your political opponents, your critics silenced, but you're not prepared to actually consistently back up those claims. You are going to drop those claims as soon as you get what you want, because this is actually just tantrum throwing by petty tyrants. If that doesn't violate U.S. law, which I would just about guarantee it does, like say, for instance, the United States Constitution, for example, there's that. (laughs) Uh, If it doesn't violate U.S. law, it certainly violates the laws of God, which were, by the way, the inspiration for the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. In part, not in whole, but in part. And oh, by the way, go back to the book of Romans in the New Testament, talking about how the law of God is written on our hearts. And so there is a certain intuitive quality to many of these things. And you say these are universal principles. These are universal rights. God sends his reigns on the just and the unjust. There is such a thing as common grace. The governing authority is supposed to reward those who do what is good and punish those who do what is evil. And it, if you say all that, if you say all of that, And no more, you're right as far as it goes. But Christians in particular have been rationalizing, minimizing, over-spiritualizing, and yes, even applying a very Gnostic mindset to these sorts of things. This is deadly serious. The implications of bearing false witness against a neighbor and saying this person is killing people, killing innocent people, The implications are, if you follow that train of thought, if that narrative is not challenged, it's not corrected, it's not rebuked, the implications are this person should ultimately be arrested if they won't shut up. They should be arrested, they should be thrown in prison, and you know what? If they actually have killed people, if this is murder, well, then they should be put to death. But then are we not actually in exactly the same spot in exactly the same place that the Soviets were in. Are we not? What exactly is the differentiation, the delineation, morally, ethically? Or is it just a question of time because the nature of the things that are being claimed is of a piece? It's just a different method. It's just a different tactic to get to the same end result. I would draw your attention to a story at the Daily Wire 
by Mayreed Elordi, published July 28, 2023. Nevada School District approves elementary sex ed using terms people with a penis and people with a vulva. The school board for the Washoe County School District in Reno approved the new sex ed curriculum for fourth and fifth grade in a five to two vote on Tuesday. The curriculum contains lessons that include the terms boys and people with a penis and girls and people with a vulva. And those are direct quotes. A reference to trans identifying people having the genitalia of their biological sex, but identifying as the opposite gender. The school board vote followed several hours of public comment where members of the community weighed in on a fourth grade lesson called, quote, understanding our bodies, end quote, which referred to people having, quote, a body with a penis or a, quote, body with a vulva, end quote. Now let's just stop right there and let's understand again that this is fourth grade. Fourth graders in a Reno, Nevada school district are being indoctrinated and propagandized in the most ungodly, abominable of ways. And their parents who send them into those public schools are someday going to have to give an account for how they protected or failed to protect or refused to protect their children, how they provided for or neglected to provide for or refused to provide for their children. There will be a generation of children who are either inoculated against these things because they hear it and they say, this is absolutely ridiculous. This is stupid. This is insane. Or there will be a whole generation that has been so brainwashed in these things by their parents' acquiescence, by their parents' silent compliance. There's a sacred thing that is being violated in parents handing their children over to be taught in this way, to be misled in this way, to be corrupted in this way. There is a perversion, there is an abomination, there is a kind of sacrilege in parents giving their children over to a school district anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, willingly, happily, downplaying everything, and then reserving their venom, reserving their so-called protectiveness, their so-called parental instincts to malign, marginalize, and attack those who say, this is wrong. This is tremendously damaging and harmful. This wasn't a close vote, by the way. Five to two. This was a five to two vote last Tuesday. It gets worse. And I quote Mayreed Elordi's piece at the Daily Wire. The fourth grade curriculum will teach kids about body parts, including the vagina, vulva, penis, urethra, scrotum, anus, clitoris, and nipples, along with cartoon diagrams of both male and female genitals. In the fifth grade, students will hear the terms, quote, assigned sex at birth male and, quote, assigned sex at birth female, end quote, as part of the curriculum. Their lessons include learning about the reproductive system. This is not about the reproductive system. This is not science. This is propaganda. This is initiation into a cult. This is initiation into paganism. This is demonic. This is satanic. This is not secular. This is of the devil. God is not going to 
fail to notice. He does not overlook this. As a man sows, so shall he reap. And it's the fathers in particular who shrug about all of the above or will only complain, but they won't pull their kids out. They won't do what is necessary to get their kids out of the reach of these sinful, wicked, depraved, false teachers. And here's the thing too. If you have Christian teachers in this environment teaching this curriculum, at what point do we say enough is enough? I'm just following orders doesn't cut it. At what point do the public school teachers who claim Christianity and they say, oh, I don't like it either, but it's my job. At what point do they pick up their cross and follow after Christ and say, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. At what point do these public school teachers say it is neither good nor wise to go against conscience? It is neither safe nor prudent to go against conscience. This violates my conscience. I cannot teach these kids these things. In fact, I'm going to go and contact the parents and warn them, get your kids out. As a corollary, hypothetically, if you were a Hebrew father in the time of the Pharaoh who ordered the midwives to drown or smother or strangle every baby boy born alive to a Hebrew woman, if you were a Hebrew father in the time shortly thereafter where Pharaoh told all of the people of Egypt, if a baby boy is born to the Hebrews, throw that baby boy in the Nile, drown that baby boy. If you were a father, what would you do? Would you protect your child or would you shrug and would you say, there's nothing for it? You know, that's one of the pieces of the narrative of Moses that doesn't get commented on very often, or at least I haven't heard it commented on very often. How many in Moses' generation were there really compared with the preceding generations? How many in that generation were there really? When Pharaoh put out the order to kill every Hebrew baby boy born alive. And oh, by the way, if I may bring this up right about now, as pertains to a situation that I'm aware of, which I've talked about on this podcast, I will keep on talking about it. I will keep on bringing it up because I think it's of a piece with so much of the subjectivity and the arbitrariness and yes, the willingness to go along with totalitarianism instead of calling for repentance. If a whole generation of Hebrews were born into a context where the supreme civil authority in the realm had declared open season on Hebrew baby boys, and we don't know how many Hebrew baby boys were killed under that edict, under that directive, but supposing it was a significant number and there were not enough young Hebrew men by the time Moses came of age, there weren't enough young Hebrew men relative the young Hebrew women, what would you say then on this whole question of polygamy? As I said, I know of a situation, and I've been referencing it in vague terms, and at some point, maybe I get less vague, perhaps, possibly, but I know of a situation in which someone I know was church disciplined out of their church, well-respected to that point, learned 
very biblically literate and very concerned with God being represented faithfully as we approach the biblical text. He was church disciplined out because he challenged a claim that the kings and the patriarchs of the Old Testament were living in unrepentant sin for all the time that they had more than one wife. He challenged that and he said, well, where is that written? Show me in the Bible where that is stated by God, where he prohibits what it is that they did, where he forbids it. Show me. Show me where that's written. And instead of being shown where that is written, because it's not in there, he was church disciplined out by the elders. He was excommunicated by the elders. Because why? Not that he was wrong, because he would not just shut up about it. He wouldn't commit to not ever talking about it again. And there are several dangerous precedents that are set by that. One of the dangerous precedents set by that kind of a decision by leaders in a church who consider themselves very conservative, actually the most conservative, the holiest, most conservative, most dedicated servants of God. When they did that, they just established a precedent for their congregations for when civil authorities similarly order someone in broader society to just shut up about whatever. No, no, no. It doesn't matter if what you're saying is true. You will be quiet about it. You will be silent or we will throw you out. And then we'll start to insinuate things in sermons and Q&As and in casual conversation. We'll start to insinuate certain things about how maybe you're not even a Christian. We hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Those have been granted to us. And so we get to say who's in and who's out and what kind of a precedent is set when it comes to totalitarianism in broader society, and whose side are these supposedly conservative theologically pastors going to be? Whose side are they going to be on? Will they be on God's side? Because God is always right. Or will they be on their own side, come what may, and come up with very spiritual-sounding but false excuses for showing partiality to whoever has the most power to punish this is a very bad way to read the biblical text, that you would come to every instance where God's servants disobey those who have some authority or can threaten, and you say, whatever they suffer as a result of that, well, they had it coming. They should have just submitted. Not so fast. It is actually extraordinarily consequential if we would apply a standard of judgment to a whole generation, let's say Moses' generation, of Hebrews in Egypt, if we would apply a standard of judgment which says all of those Hebrew men who may have taken more than one wife because there weren't enough young men to go around to marry all of these young ladies, they were all living in unrepentant sexual sin and therefore we're not even sure if they're going to be in the hereafter among God's people. You start doing that with one issue And where does it stop? Where does it stop? Well, maybe it doesn't stop when you come to the question of how do we define gender and sexuality? Maybe it doesn't stop when we start getting to the question of the civil authorities telling us that we're going to respect this so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which gives equal 
legitimacy, equal honor to gay marriage, so-called. A marriage between two men, so-called. A marriage between two women, so-called. When it's arbitrary and when you just do whatever the people with the authority with the biggest stick to hit you with if you don't obey, if we just obey whatever they say, if we just repeat whatever they tell us to say, if we just keep quiet every time they tell us that's enough out of you, pretty soon we're throwing our own children into the Nile because, well, Pharaoh said, after all, Pharaoh said, I'm just following orders. Pretty soon we're standing there mute, still as the grave, as our Egyptian neighbor takes our child, who is a boy, and chucks him into the Nile River. Why? Because, oh, well, you have to be subject to the governing authorities. After all, that was never supposed to be a blank check. And if you had read your Bible and not rested on your laurels so much, being tall, handsome, well-built, athletic, accomplished, honored by people, if you had read your Bible and not just rested on your laurels so much, you would know that. If you had studied to show yourself an approved workman who needs not be ashamed, you would know that. If you weren't counting on the good old boys network to come through for you and run interference for you and uphold your bad decision here, your overreach, you would know that. If you feared God more and loved yourself less, you would know that. This whole business of boys and people with a penis, girls and people with a vulva, this is what you get when your political theology demands unquestioned obedience, silence, compliance, affirmation, stay out of all that, and neglects to recognize the appropriate sphere of authority which belongs to not just the church, but the family as well. And that's the other side of this, is that there are far too many supposedly conservative, supposedly committed to the authority of God's word churches and pastors in this country who only have two categories. Now, it's an awful ugly thing when those who are godless only have one category, and that is the state, the civil authorities, the only category, and they think everything belongs in it. It is awful and ugly and horrible also when the church says, when the clergy say, when the pastors say, the overseers say, we only regard two spheres of authority, the state and the church. Have you ever stopped to consider that there's a false dichotomy when we talk about separation of church and state, as if those are the only two categories of authority in society? It's the church on the one hand, and it's the state on the other. And exactly what is left for the family? What is left for the husband and the father to assert, this is wrong? No, you don't. No, you won't. I won't let you, and I'm telling you no, and no means no, and you stop it. Why is there not a third category when we talk about separation of church and state? And oh, by the way, why do we talk about separation of church and state when it comes to individual Christians who are husbands, who are fathers, who are men, who say, I can't say the thing you want me to say. I can't do the thing that you want me to do. Why do we put that into the category of church and then automatically trust the experts when so often the experts in the church as well, so-called experts, 
are leading us astray as badly as the so-called experts among the godless. Now, this is one of the hallmarks of the judgment that Israel and Judah came under, that the priests also acted corruptly. When Samuel is born to his mother Hannah, who was, by the way, one of at least two wives to her husband, but childless and being tormented by her husband's other wife, when she cried out to God and asked and pleaded for a son, and then Samuel was born to her, and she kept her vow, and she dedicated him to the service of the temple and handed him over to be instructed and to serve in the temple in a priestly way. When all of that came to pass, who was it who anointed David's head with oil when God had chosen to take the kingdom away from Saul for his disobedience, even though God had raised up Saul to be king over Israel for a time, who was it that God raised up? It was Samuel who, like David, had been serving under a priest whose sons were behaving corruptly in the office of the priesthood, behaving corruptly, lewdly, immorally, in an ungodly fashion, in a high-handed way, arrogantly, presumptuously. It was Samuel who had from little on up seen these two sons of Eli, the priest, getting away with whatever they would do. Why? Because their father, Eli, showed partiality to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli showed partiality. And so then what did God do? God removed Eli and his sons from the priesthood. God himself removed them. Fast forward. Samuel anoints Saul. Israel, as one man, makes Saul a king, as is God's will. Saul is king for a time, and he disobeys. He acts presumptuously. He behaves in a high-handed way. He abuses his power and his authority and even tries to murder David because he's jealous of David. David, who is a youth, the people are saying about him that he has killed his ten thousands, while Saul has killed his thousands of the enemy. Saul abuses his power and his authority. He cares about himself. He cares about what he wants to do. He doesn't fear God. The kingdom is taken away from him. Samuel is the one who grew up watching the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, being treated with partiality, being treated with partiality and allowed to get away with things which they ought not to have gotten away with. Samuel is ready for the moment in which judgment will be pronounced on Saul, and there will be some time before the kingdom is well and truly taken away from Saul, but ultimately, the kingdom will pass to David. And David's not perfect either, but David is a man after God's own heart in a way that Saul never was. And what's the difference, right? What's the difference here? The difference is going back to Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us. Verse 14, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. 
I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God, that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. David believed that even if he did not always remember it, even if he sinned, and he did. And yet Saul must have known these things, and he didn't believe it. And it wasn't the exception, it was the rule that he did his own thing. He did what seemed right in his own eyes. He approached the authority that had been entrusted in him in a flippant way, in a glib way, showing the utmost partiality, first and foremost, to himself. And that will be the ruin of so many in our country, in our day, that they show partiality, first and foremost, to themselves. When it seems as though they're showing partiality to other people, let's think about it. It's actually, at the end of it, them showing partiality to themselves because they're thinking, what do I stand to lose if I call this person to account? What do I stand to gain if I look the other way? And oh, by the way, also, even with those who are innocent, what do I stand to gain if I oppose them? What do I stand to lose if I stick up for them as they are being harmed, slandered, marginalized? If we want there to be a revival, if we want there to be restoration, it starts with us. It starts with the household of God. It starts with the church recognizing, yes, that it has authority to command obedience, to teach sound doctrine, to correct false teaching. Yes, all of that, all of that. To discipline those who are stubbornly unrepentant and living in clear, unmistakable sin. But if the church wants to do that job, it has to also affirm that third category and call men in particular to rise to the occasion instead of every time men do rise to the occasion, shooting them down. Because like with the civil authority, perceiving free men in the country as a threat to be silenced, to be quashed, to be disenfranchised, to be marginalized, to be maligned, to be slandered ultimately, just like that, if it happens in the church that the church authorities with impunity arbitrarily silence and marginalize and slander the laymen in their congregations, all the while saying, we are just maintaining order. That's all we're doing. Take care. Take care. There's a holy and righteous God who from heaven sees all that you do and he sees what is in your heart. You don't have to convince me. You don't have to impress me. He sees. He knows. He will judge with right judgment. And if you won't, his right judgment is a fearsome thing to behold. Do what is good. Choose life. This is not too hard for you. Do what he has told you to do. Choose life, not death. Choose good, not evil. Obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that he has commanded you. Love Yahweh by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments. Then you will live then you will multiply. Yahweh your God will bless you in the land. Maybe not this land, but maybe this land. Don't be stubborn. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. I believe firmly if we will embrace these things, it will go well for us. 
I hope you will hear that. I hope you will believe that as well. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.